We are continuing in our Isaiah series. We are in chapter 48 uh, today. Just by way of reminder, and for the benefit of those who are here perhaps for the first time, we are in the portion of Isaiah's ministry that begins in Isaiah chapter 40, which begins with the well-known verses, Comfort, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And so begins this segment of Isaiah's message to us and this segment of Isaiah's ministry, the ministry of God's comfort to Israel. Well, some of us who have been listening to this series and who have been tracking with Isaiah for some time might be wondering, comfort? What happened to all that comfort? Since Isaiah 40, I have heard precious little of that comfort. It seems that Isaiah has been continuing the convicting theme begun in the first 39 chapters of Israel's stubborn and steadfast idolatry. Where's the comfort, comfort, comfort in that? The comfort, however, is not to be found in pretending that Israel is not as idolatrous as it is. The comfort is not to be found by pretending that Israel has been less faithless than she has been, but that because of Yahweh's far greater love, far greater faithfulness, He will act, even as He has acted, to rescue Israel his beloved in whom he delights, from all her enemies, those that surround her, as well as those that dwell within her. In chapter 47, we saw how because of God's great love for his people, by his mighty acts, he would humiliate the empire of Babylon, by which his people would, be, would find themselves held captive and deeply oppressed. Good news indeed, a word of comfort indeed. And as we move into chapter 48, that theme continues. That the Lord God himself, because of his great love for his people, will stop at nothing to destroy the spirit of Babylon wherever she attacks His people. We see that he is so committed that he will purge his people of the spirit of Babylon, which they have drunk so deeply and by which they are poisoned and held captive and led to their own destruction. So read with me, if you will, Isaiah chapter 48. We will read the first 11 verses. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the Lord, confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. They call themselves after the holy city. They stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know you are obstinate 
and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard. Now see all of this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew that. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not opened, has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. And for the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own name's sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Brothers and sisters, as strange as that might sound, that is tremendously good news to us, his people, even in 21st century North America. So let us go to him in prayer. So, Father, we come to this time and this hour that you have set aside to this, your word, now read, that we may hear it proclaimed. By the powerful working of your spirit, we pray that you would grant these lips clarity and courage. You would guard these lips from error. And that by the powerful working of your spirit, now once again you would cry out, peace, be still. That the storms and distractions, the winds and the waves of our hearts and minds may be at peace that we may hear you speak. Have your way, O Father, we pray. For we pray it as your children in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's in a name? So, um, recently, as many of you know, um, our... um, our odyssey went the way of all flesh. It, uh, it was smoking, despite the fact that I told it that smoking was bad for its health. And finally, the transmission seized up. And there you are. We sat on the side of the road and we watched it die a painful death. In the days that followed, we set about um, looking, having properly grieved the death of the Odyssey, I assure you, we didn't move too fast. We set about looking for a replacement, though, who could replace our beloved Odyssey. And it was very interesting. So you speak to people about, perhaps, a Ford. Oh. You know what Ford stands for, don't you? Or a Kia. Really? Really? 
thinking about a Kia? Everybody knows what's involved with owning a Kia. So we thought maybe of a, of a Honda again. Well, yeah, they're pretty good. Pretty good Hondas. Or a Toyota. Now, now you're talking. Names mean something, don't they? Our names mean things. Jacob's name means something. Names are the handles by which we come to know something or someone. They are not mere arbitrary labels, despite how it is that we may have come to have our names. They actually come to embody who we are for good and for ill. And it is this fact on which Isaiah is playing as he develops this passage before us, Isaiah chapter 48, verses 1 through 11. He starts out by naming Jacob. Jacob. I, I spoke with uh, one of our dear parishioners who bears this name, and I said, I promise I'm not thinking of you in particular. He said he would labor to forgive me. Because the fact of the matter is, we are Jacob. Do you remember that episode a year or so ago where there was this bombing in Paris of the, what is it, the Charlie Hebdo um, newspaper, satiric newspaper in France? And suddenly everybody was saying on Facebook and they were wearing t-shirts and they were carrying signs saying, I am Charlie Hebdo. The idea being that we wanted to identify with them. And so it is that we are Jacob. You remember Jacob, don't you? His name means cheater, deceiver. You know Jacob that I'm talking about, the conniver, the schemer, the deal maker, the wheeler and dealer. The one who tricked his father, the one who manipulated his brother. You know who I'm talking about. The one who fled for his life because he thought, I don't understand why, that his brother might be upset with him. The one who lived for years in fear that his brother would be hunting him down. That's the one. You remember that after those years in the Lord's sovereignty, it came time for him to return home. And then suddenly, all of the fears of those many years built up and came to expression so that he had a night in which he could not sleep and he wrestled and strove with an angel. The night in which his name became not Jacob, but Israel. The one who strives with God. We are Jacob, aren't we? Isaiah is speaking again climactically in this 48th chapter to Israel about the comfort of God. And the doorway into, our, in, into this comfort of God is knowing that we are Jacob. And so Isaiah says, the fact of the matter is, you have been Jacob in the past and you will be Jacob in the future. You are Jacob. 
You are Israel. You are the one who claims to come from the fountains of Judah, from the headwaters of Judah. You even swear by the name of the Lord and confess the Lord, but ironically, it is part of a great lie. It's not true. It's not right. Because whoever it is that you think yourself to be striving with, so to speak, whoever it is you think yourself to be coming from and swearing by and confessing, it is not, in fact, the God of Israel. That's hard stuff. Jacob lived up to his name in the past. These former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them. They came to pass. I did these things because I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you ahead of time so that when they happened, you would not say, hey, look at what my great gods have done. Because, as we learn, he is treacherous. Verse 8. Jacob lived up to his name in the past. The fact of the matter is, he will live up to his name in the future. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard them, lest you should say, I knew that. I was struck by that expression this week in my preparation because I think, because I thought that captures so much of how we operate and how we speak in our own culture. The pinnacle of wisdom in our culture is never, ever being caught by surprise. You will never catch me off guard. I knew that. I knew it was coming. But God is going to act in such a way that we will not be able to say, I knew that. We will not be able to say, oh yeah, yeah, saw that coming. We will be stunned to the point that it was simply, will be simply unbelievable. You think about it, this is how we operate. We attribute these things to our idols. In the wisdom and the sorceries of Babylon, we, we find ourselves attributing more and more and more of the wonders of God's amazing grace and faithfulness in our lives to the discoveries of science and to our great learning, don't we? It rained, and so like the Israelites before us, and since most Canaanite experts attribute it to Baal, we believe, and it must be so, that Baal caused it to rain. After all, they went to the best schools in Canaan. They have MAs and PhDs to show it, and most of the experts agree that Baal caused it to rain, and so it must be Baal. Not so many people would be wrong, would they? Well, no, unless, of course, it's not Baal who caused it to rain. 
our God will act in such a mighty way and in such a wondrous way that we will not be able to attribute it to anything known heretofore. And so it is that we find ourselves insisting that the world's wise men and sorcerers are essential to living wisely and faithfully as followers of Jesus in the complexities of the modern world. Jesus is great in everything, but there's no way he could have anticipated the kinds of complex issues that we're facing today. And as soon as we grant that, brothers and sisters, you understand we have bought the lie of our modern enlightenment age according to which we know best. And as soon as we say that, as soon as we grant that, we deny from the get-go the essential core of the gospel. It's not that we're denying part of it. We're cutting off the taproot of the gospel. Namely, Jesus is Lord. It is a categorical statement. It is a comprehensive statement. Jesus is Lord. And without that categorical assertion, we have no gospel. When we find ourselves bored with the wonder and the wisdom of Jesus, needing somehow to spice him up a bit or somehow supplement him in order to keep him up to date, in order for him to keep our attention among the, gla- the clamor and the glamour of the world's gods and demigods, and then, brothers and sisters, we have denied and extinguished the power of the gospel, namely, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Without that, we have no gospel. Anything in addition to that, and we have no gospel. We have nothing to proclaim. And so it is that our speech patterns tend to betray our belief that Jesus is great in everything, but somehow needs to be supplemented. When I get, or if I could just accomplish, if I could just get there, if I could just be in this kind of situation, if I could be in just that kind of situation, then I'd be in a place that I could really believe Jesus and really obey Jesus and really love my neighbor and really serve my Lord and really worship him with my whole life. When all of these things get Put in place, then we can believe. Then we can obey. Somehow we believe that gathering and polishing the fruit will cultivate the root, when in fact it is self evidently the opposite. But this is exactly what it means for Jacob. Jacob is the is the one of the great forefathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, children of the promise. What was the promise? Well, the promise was that Abram's name would be great. 
Right? And so it is that we find Abram, we find Isaac, and we find Jacob, the forefathers of our faith, scheming and conniving to make their name great, to preserve their name from the vicissitudes of an idolatrous Pharaoh who may see that my wife is beautiful and take her. And so we scheme, and so we manipulate, and so we deceive in order to preserve our great name and to make our name great. But that was never the promise. The promise in the shadow of Babel when mankind was seeking to make its name great, the promise was, I will make your name great. I will do this thing. Not you. The problem is that we tend to hear the gospel that that in Jesus Christ all the spiritual blessings are ours. And so we take that to believe it's not a promise and not a gift, but it's a commission that we must now labor in order to secure for ourselves all the spiritual blessings that are ours. And so we deny the gospel. And so we scheme, and so we deceive, and so we manipulate, and so we make deals. We move here and we run there, all in an effort to preserve our great name and to make our name great. This is what Jacob came to mean. This is what Israel came to mean. That you're striving with God to seize from him that which he has already promised. The question is this. What's a person to do? Just just tell me what to do. We find ourselves screaming in helplessness. Jacob had an honorable pedigree and an honorable authority and honorable connections. And yet he was betraying it at every turn in the past and in the future. What's a person to do? How did... Jacob find himself in this place? How did Israel find themselves in this place? And having found themselves in this place, what are they to do now? You see, the point is not, and it has never been, how well Israel would keep the covenant. In fact, the point has always been how notoriously and infamously and repeatedly Israel has broken the covenant. The point, rather, is how doggedly committed Yahweh is to unmistakably establish the real glory of His name in such a way that it accrues to the glory of Israel. The question is this, God can do anything, right? 
It's a trick question. Because no, God is bound by his promises. And he must act accordingly. The question we have is, you know what? As we read about Israel's habitual, steadfast faithlessness, why not just wipe the slate clean? Why not just crumble up the piece of paper like we do, throw it out, and start afresh? Why not just start over with a new people, less prone to idolatry and less vulnerable to the spirit of Babylon? This is what makes sense to us. The easy answer to this question, however, is that in fact there are no such people. You know the story. You can go from church to church to church looking for the perfect people of God. But as soon as you walk in, they're no longer perfect. There are no such people. But the less intuitive and somewhat more surprising answer is that while this is how we operate, while it's true that we might crumble up the paper to start over, we might even wet, rip up the wedding certificate or find a new, and find a new spouse or try out multiple partners before settling on the one. Move from church to church, desperately seeking true love and faithfulness and holiness and preaching and singing. But what we take as common is in fact our shame. It's not the fruit of our fidelity, but it's the fruit of our lack of faith. For you see, the glory of God is seen not only in his dogged commitment to a notoriously and infamously and repeatedly faithless people, but in his dogged delight to such a people. Look. Verse 8. The second half. I knew that you would be treacherous. I knew that you were a rebel. Look back with me at verse 4. Because I know that you are obstinate. I know that your neck is like an iron sinew. I know that your forehead is like brass. I know these things. I am not surprised by these things. I know it, and I knew it. And I will always know it. As, as Moses told the people in his last sermons before entering the promised land that we have as Deuteronomy, and as Paul echoes it again in his letters to the Corinthians, God does not set his love upon us because we are not obstinate. He does not set His love upon us because we are not stiff-necked people. He does not set His love upon us because we are not treacherous or rebellious. He sets His love upon us because, well, that's who He is. That's the glory of His name. To love a treacherous, obstinate, rebellious people. I don't know about you, but that is really, really good news for me. Because I'm really, really good at being obstinate. I'm really good at being arrogant and being stiff-necked. I'm 
really good at being treacherous. I'm really good at being a manipulator and being a deal maker. I'm really good at that. And if that's the kind of people a God needs to love, then I'm all in. Because that's the glory of our Father. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Not for you. For my name's sake, I restrain my anger for you. I have refined you. For my name's sake, what is that name? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 34. You'll remember the episode. We were just looking at this um, this past week or before. Moses, in his great discouragement with the... With the habitual, uh, instinctual idolatry of the people has come down and found that, lo and behold, they built a fire and out came a calf. And they were worshiping it. And Moses is saying, oy vey. That's where that term originated, just so you know. And he says, oh, my Lord I must see your glory. And this is what the Lord says. Exodus chapter 34, beginning with verse 5. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The glory of God's name is his mercy and his grace and his slowness to anger and his abounding steadfast love and faithfulness and his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. You see, the hope of Israel is not in their faithfulness. It's in God's faithfulness. The comfort for Israel is not that they are less idolatrous than they know themselves to be or imagine themselves to be, but that God is far more faithful and loving, in fact. Which is why we are taught to pray. Look in your bulletin. We are taught to pray this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be my name, excuse me, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, not mine. Thy will be done on earth, not mine. And then we go to the bottom, to the rationale. For thine is the kingdom, not mine. Thine is the power, not mine. Thine is the glory, not mine. You see... Jesus is not just teaching us something to say every Sunday, 
by mindless rote. He is teaching us to say things that do not come naturally to us. Because every voice from our culture is telling us to live for your kingdom, to live for your glory, to live to make your will known, to live to secure for yourself power. And Jesus comes and says, no. If you are my follower, you will pray in this way. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. For thine is the kingdom. And thine is the power. And thine is the glory. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. It is for that, the sake of that name. It is for the sake of that glory. It is for the sake of that kingdom. That God acts on behalf of a notoriously and infamously faithless people. For my sake, for my own sake, I do this so that my name shall not be profaned because I will not give my glory to another. Brothers and sisters, our hope and our comfort is not that we are not Jacob. Our comfort and our hope is not that we don't strive with God. Our hope and our comfort is that God strives with us. He pursues us down through the ages. Just this week, Ravi Zacharias wrote this. I believe that one of the most profound poems ever, ever written was penned by an Englishman by the name of Francis Thompson. Thompson was a genius, but he became a drug addict, and he was on the run for many years, scheming and conniving and deal-making. And towards the latter part of his life, he wrote this magnificent masterpiece, which he called The Hound of Heaven. And the poem describes God as the persistent hound who with loving feet follows, 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 until he catches us, who has been running from him. This is how the poem goes, in part. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the libertine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him. And under running laughter of vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed, followed after. We find ourselves frequently in the midst of all of our scheming and conniving to be in a place that we do not recognize. And we hear something coming after us and that something speaks ah find fondest blindest weakest i am he whom thou seekest thou dravest love from thee who dravest me zacharias Concludes with the wisdom of one who had found himself chased after. Thompson notes the heart of God 
and the contradiction of humanity. We run away fearful that if we have God, we might have nothing else beside. And God says, you are weak and blind and miserable when you are driving me away because you are actually driving love away from you. You are driving me away from you. It is me that you seek. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not that we are not Jacob. Our hope is not that we don't strive with God. But our hope in the midst of the very circumstances you find yourself is that he strives with us, that his grace is sufficient for me, for my spouse, for my children, for my neighbor, for my coworker, even my boss. Even that teacher who just gave you an assignment that is impossible. His grace is sufficient. Because our hope is not that we and all these people are less sinful than we are. But that he is far more faithful. And far more loving than we dare to imagine. That is the glorious name that we have been given. And that we bear It is the name of Jesus. So, Father, we do come.